the Jewish views on introducing Islam into Jewish classrooms, the subject that's on everyone's lips gets discussed on this very program. The new Union of Jewish Students president, what is life really like for the Jewish students on campus? And would you be a collaborator when writing a new book? But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An estimated 200 people attended the funeral of the Labour peer and former MP for Leicester West, Lord Janna, at Wilsdon Green Jewish Cemetery. Lord Janna was 87 and had suffered from dementia. The former chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, led the prayers after the burial. Lord Janna, a former barrister, had been charged with an alleged 22 sex offences against nine boys over a period of 30 years. His family claimed he was entirely innocent of any wrongdoing, but the charges overshadowed his parliamentary achievements and work for Jewish causes. The Board of Deputies has distanced itself from the Muslim Council of Britain after it was found to have links to the Muslim Brotherhood. Jewish community leaders have clarified that they had no formal relationship with the council and that they only worked together on joint statements last year because of the backlash against Israel over Gaza. The Muslim Brotherhood has been accused of extremism by the Prime Minister. Pupils at two of the Jewish community's secondary schools, JFS and Emmanuel College, are to study Islam as part of their religious studies GCSE. Their head teachers welcome the government-proposed changes to the curriculum, which have been endorsed by the chief rabbi. But the National Association of Orthodox Jewish Schools said it was an unwarranted intrusion into religious freedoms in our schools. In Jerusalem, three Israelis were stabbed, two of them seriously, in an attack by two Palestinians. Police had to seal off an area by the Jaffa Gate. One of the attackers was shot and killed, the other was apprehended. And in Ranana, near Tel Aviv, a 20-year-old Palestinian man stabbed three Israelis, one of them seriously, before being arrested. These are the latest incidents in a three-month span of almost daily attacks on Israelis that have killed 20. And finally, a former JFS pupil is spearheading a campaign that could see an NHS choir beat Justin Bieber to the coveted Christmas number 1 slot. Harriet Nerva, who's a junior doctor at Hinchingbrook Hospital in Cambridge, has been touring radio studios with the doctors and nurses who make up the Lewisham and Greenwich Choir to promote their charity single, Bridge Over You. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thank you, Vivian. One of the most successful teams in Jewish football has withdrawn from the league, citing a mixture of a lack of personnel and bad results for their demise. Faithfold A have won the joint second highest amount of Premier League titles since 2000 and are the second team to fold this season, meaning the league now has just 32 teams. On the pitch, the last round of games in 2015 produced the most emphatic result of the year, as Scrabble thrashed Temple Fortune 16-0 to make it 11 wins from 11 and extend their lead at the top of the Division 2 table to 10 points. North London Raiders A are now 7 points clear at the top of the Premier Division following a 1-0 win over Hendon, but the Division 1 leaders Brady McCarby dropped points in a thrilling 3-3 draw against Faithfold B. The league resumes on the 10th of January. And finally, the Israeli National Tennis Championships have been won by a Ukrainian. 17-year-old Olga Fridman, who holds Israeli citizenship but is still awaiting the opportunity to represent them, caused an upset by defeating the number one seed Julia Glushko in the women's competition. Dudi Seller won a third consecutive men's title, while Andy Ram and Jonathan Ehrlich teamed up again to win the doubles. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, let's start off the show like we normally do, which is with a look at the edition of the Jewish News for this week. 
Joining me in the studio, we have news editor Justin Cohen and editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Justin, shall we start off with, well, I don't know if we saw this coming or we didn't really, actually the passing of Lord Janna. Yes, and the funeral has taken place this week and was very distinct by the fact that there were just 200 people or so at the funeral. And I think this really emphasises how difficult a situation this has been for the community as well as the wider country, how the community has been grappling with this issue for months now. Lord Jenner undoubtedly is one of the, has been one of the most important community figures in this country for decades and decades. His setting up of the Holocaust Educational Trust, President of the Board of Deputies, also his contribution to wider society in Parliament. You would have expected, obviously, had it not been for recent events, much stronger praise, many more statements. I would have expected my my inbox to have been completely full this week. It hasn't been. The messages have been very muted. And I think that speaks volumes. One of the tragedies of this situation, of course, is the fact that the alleged victims now won't get their opportunity for their day in court. And similarly, Lord Janner and his family, who have strenuously denied the allegations, won't have an opportunity to prove his innocence. And of course, we need to remind those who are perhaps in any sort of doubt as to what we're referring to. We are, of course, talking about the uh, the accusations, the trial that he was potentially going to face that he might have faced he might not have faced it was quite up in the air based on his health situation which obviously now we appreciate why but he was potentially facing abuse allegations wasn't he that's right multiple allegations dating back many years and within hours actually of the announcement of his death from from Lord Janna's family the CPS confirmed that there wouldn't now be a trial of the facts which was this kind of strange legal process whereby there wouldn't be a verdict of guilty or not guilty, but they would determine you know, the merits of the evidence on, on both sides. It's since emerged that there's still a possibility this could take place. And if it doesn't, there's also the Goddard inquiry, which may touch on some of these issues. Yeah, so it is definitely, it's a tricky one and one, of course, that I'm sure will unfold uh, towards the beginning of the new year. Now, Richard, Islam in schools, we obviously touched upon this last week, and this is the chief rabbi giving the thumbs up to the Islamic religion being taught in Jewish schools based on uh, governments requesting that, uh, that faith schools do teach at least one other religion. Yeah, Jewish schools are going to have to teach 25% of its curriculum in religious studies on another faith as of September and the start of the school term then. Chief Rabbi came out and as you said we discussed it last week briefly that uh, the Chief Rabbi suggests that Jewish schools teach Islam. We've obviously been following that up. It's a big talking point for the community. At least two of the community's secondary schools have heeded the Chief Rabbi's call. They will teach Islam, uh, Emmanuel and JFS, the biggest Jewish school in Europe. We're uh, trying to ascertain how many more will follow suit. We're also obviously wondering will this be reciprocated? Obviously it will only be a partial and inadequate initiative if Muslim schools don't follow suit. We've just spoken to the Association of Muslim Schools. We're hopefully going to try and find out exactly how many of those are going to teach Judaism as part of their 25%. The reaction amongst our readers has been quite uh, vocal. A lot of them are concerned that it would only be partial and inadequate if if it isn't two-sided. They can see a lot of good in it in terms of the common ground, the mutual understanding, the shared values that it would instill. But it would only be a halfway house unless it's two-sided. But the figureheads at the moment, certainly from the Jewish point of view anyway, the Jewish head teachers and various members of the community, leaders of the community, appear to be in favour of this notion at the moment. 
They are. In fact, the Board of Deputies and Pages, which is the organisation that oversees Jewish schools, are actually going to be doing an initiative in February going into non-Jewish schools and teaching them how to convey Judaism should these schools decide they want to teach Judaism as their 25%. So this is being rolled out in the next few months and it's going to take quite a big difference in terms of religious studies come the school term next September. So it really is within a matter of a couple of terms, we might actually see this as standard practice throughout Jewish schools or some Jewish schools. Yeah, uh, it's going to be standard practice and people do see the sense in it. Mutual understanding, education, seeing the, the truth and, and, the, and the validity of a, of a religious belief and ethos in, in, in religions beyond your own is the start of building bridges. So obviously a lot of people can see the sense in this, but as I said, it, it needs to be a two-way street. Indeed. All right. Well, we shall uh, watch this space with that one. And also, I believe that, well, you might not necessarily expect this to be in the Jewish news, but perhaps you might like to explain the Jewish element behind it. The NHS has been in the news this week, in particular, a group of nurses have been in the news this week, trying to knock Justin Bieber off the Christmas number one spot. Why is this in the Jewish news, Justin? Yes, well, Harriet Nerva, a junior doctor, 26-year-old junior doctor, is actually one of the one of the people spearheading the campaign to get this to Christmas number one. It's a campaign she started back in October. She wasn't even aware of this choir. She didn't know the people in it. She's now very much very familiar with them, uh, touring recording studios that they were on the Chris Evans show, if I can mention, a rival station during, during Jewish Views. The campaign is actually going very well. It looks like it's going to be this two-horse race and actually on the download sales this week, it's the NHS choir that has the edge. Goodness, fingers crossed for them anyway, because I, I think that we can all relish in some sort of delight to see the underdog win, which I believe is what uh, a lot of people do spearhead and do champion in this country. Fingers crossed for that. Now, also, Justin, I believe that uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles also features in the paper this week. What's he been up to? Yes, he was at the 175th anniversary celebrations for the West London Synagogue in central London last week. It was quite an occasion, uh, about 400 people there. He took part in a service, first of all, to mark the conclusion of those 175th anniversary celebrations, during which he was tapping his feet to Shekhianu after Rabbi Neuberger instructed the congregants to rock in the aisles. He then met members, volunteers from the synagogue's drop-in programme for asylum seekers and also those that have been helped by that programme. It was particularly fascinating actually to speak to some of those asylum seekers. One man in particular was telling me that, that he came from Sudan and had never previously met Jewish people when he found out about the synagogue's work. And he, you know, he had quite a negative impression from the news, apparently. He, he obviously has a rather different impression now. And it just shows some of the fantastic outreach and social action work that that community is doing. Does indeed. Well, brilliant. OK, well, it's always good to see when the royal family get behind the community in one way or another. And I know that Prince Charles is no stranger to the community, so good on him. And now I believe that in one of the final editions of this year... We're going to be tested this week, Richard. Is that right? What What is this about? Sorry, are you going to see whether or not readers have been paying attention? Mm. Great time of the year to look back, reflect, have a bit of fun. It's absolutely got nothing to do with the fact that there's no news this time of the year. <laughs> so we're just padding out empty pages. Readers of the paper and online, we have an online version of the quiz too, are invited to take part in the Big Fat Jewish News Quiz of 2015, featuring everyone from uh, Mrs. Rowell and Lionel Richie to Marmite and Ed Miliband 
and they're all there. I tell you what, why don't I test your grey matter? With yes, I, of... I was afraid when I saw this written down. I had a feeling this was coming that you might challenge me on this. So I've got to see now if I've been paying attention to the news. One of the 25 questions, they're all multiple choice. So you have a one in three chance of answering each of them correctly. Good luck. Uh, I don't expect 100%. But anyway, I'm going to give you question 11. Might stick in yours or our listeners' minds. How many JFS pupils were sent home for misbehaviour in May? Was it A, 1? Was it B, 2? Or was it C, 300? All of year 11? Now, I think I know this, but I don't want to give the answer away, obviously, based on that I don't want to ruin the quiz for others. But I believe it was all of the year because they were worried about further outbreaks of rioting as it were because i i do remember trying to cover that on a previous version of this very program so mm. it's i'm sure it was the whole year okay well i'm not going to give it away no. you'll have to read the paper <laughs> for the answer all i will say is it's my alma mater i'm a, a weitzman boy from 1987 so when that news broke obviously I, was, I took a personal interest as well as a professional one i see and uh have we got any other questions we've we got just one more we can tease people with Okay. Let's... Only one more, and then we'll we'll leave them all to the rest of them, okay. and they can go and find out for themselves what's on the quiz, and go and have a go at answering them. Okay. Just to whet your appetite, I'll give you one more, and there are uh, twenty three others to answer when you pick up the paper. Number seven is Miss Israel, twenty fifteen, is a national champion in which sport? Is it A, fencing, B, darts, or C, camel wrestling? I see. I have absolutely no idea, so I'm not even going to try and make an idiot of myself with that one. I painted a picture there, haven't I? <laughs> Miss, Miss, Miss Israel Camel Wrestling. That's definitely a sight to behold, I'm quite sure. Well, I'm actually going to have a go at that quiz later on myself. I, I, I relish the challenge, and hopefully you do as well. So, of course, I assume that that quiz can be found at jewishnews.co.uk. Yep, it's online. There's a multiple choice quiz you can play around with, which is probably more fun even than the paper, but it's across two pages of this week's edition as well. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by author and journalist Jeremy Havadi and Rabbi Morris Michaels from Aleth Garden Synagogue. They'll be discussing the story that's on everyone's lips at the moment, and that is the introduction of teaching the Islamic faith in Jewish schools. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Josh Seitler, the new president of the Union of Jewish Students. Now, have you ever thought about writing a book? I'm being perfectly serious. I think it's different for those who make it their career, but when good friends Michael Radbill and Graham Taylor decided to do just that, they collaborated on the entire project and have now completed their new book, Collaborators. Rather apt, right? Entertainment reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us about the unusual way in which they wrote their novel. She started by asking Michael how exactly it worked with the two of them putting pen to paper. I have to say that, first of all, I had never written a book until I started to write and see whether I could put something together for collaborators. But the whole idea for the book stemmed from Graham. We literally were on holiday one year and sitting having a drink or two, and I think in those days we may have even been smoking, I'm not sure. But we were out on a balcony, no, Graham's nodding his head, I was probably smoking. And Graham told me about this idea that he had for what immediately grabbed me as an amazing potential book. And Graham said to me, as he'll tell you, why don't you have a go and write it? So I literally started to put pen to paper, and it became quite a long process because we would have regular meetings, but that's how it started. So 
But Graham, you came up with this based on what? Something you'd seen, read, heard? No, not at all. I have a background in sort of medicine and have often come up with stories based on medical ideas. And I had this idea about a doctor who was New York based and at the top of his career in infectious diseases and uh, pediatrics. And he was a bit frustrated and wanted to take a break and needed to advertise for a locum. So he did. And he had a group of doctors come in for the, the job. And he was absolutely captivated by a woman from Russia. Sasha Velinsky. That's it. Basically, it was a blend of something to do with medicine, something romantic, something east-west, a thriller, murders, everything all in one. And how did you know that Michael would be able to write, create, if you like, what you had in your mind? Well, I didn't, but I suspected it. And I suspected it because I've known Michael, well, for virtually our lifetimes. Uh, we grew up together. And, and it's quite, it was quite clear and always clear to me that he has a, an ability and a degree of patience, I think, that I don't have and a kind of verbal and literary skill that I probably don't have. But I have to say, I did certainly find it the most creative thing that I have ever done. And thing as a writer is not a very good word to use, but it was the most creative process I have ever gone through in my entire life. Why is that? Because as I, working together closely with Graham developed the story and as the story did develop obviously one needed to bring in characters to make the plot unfold and I was creating these characters from from nowhere and and making them hopefully come to life and interact with other characters in the book and I was I was making a little sort of microcosm you know a little and did you have to world. ask Graham I'm not sure what this woman would do next or I feel this chap should be doing x and y sometimes I would and sometimes I wouldn't but obviously because and it's very interesting the book is called collaborators and it really is one of the reasons why that title is so apt because it's a, a case of collaborating on various levels at the most you know obvious level it was Graham and I collaborating the entire time so what would happen is I would write a chunk of pages not that many sometimes, sometimes more, and I would show those to Graham and Graham would give me feedback and because he and I, as he said, have long have known each other for long enough, he's very honest and would tell me that's rubbish, start again, no I like this, develop that character, what about this, pose lots of questions and, and the process grew from that. I think that's fair. Do you sort Is of it, see it coming together in the st on, the, on the page as you hoped? Yes, it was a sort of an evolution really. So it started off there were core characters which were crucial and fundamental to the whole story. But clearly, as the story develops and scenarios grow around that central theme, then other characters require, you know, creation, really. So you create characters out of, out of nowhere and out of need because of a story evolving with time. And then it would be a process of the two of us sitting down and just exploring how that could grow. Your question was about did I see the story come to life in, in the pages? Most definitely, yeah. It takes some time. It's not something that happens quickly, and it's something that you need to commit to, and it takes a lot of discipline. And it's certainly nothing I'd ever done before, and I don't think it's something Michael had ever done before. So we, we sort of started not knowing where on earth it would end up. But as it turns out, I think we're both really delighted with the story and some of the, the process of writing this book resulted in 
if you like, a punchline that I think we were both really delighted with. I'm not sure that we had anticipated it from the outset. So actually, that's a true evolution. It really morphed into something. Towards the end. I remember hearing Howard Jacobson speak once, and I remember him saying that the characters on the stage were, were doing their own thing, and almost he was sort of recording what they were doing. Yeah. So it became a, a question of him just having to write it down, yeah. which is real creation, isn't it? Yes. My house and every room in the house was full of notes, scribbling, crossing out, scribbling again. In the middle of the night, and I referred earlier to you know how creative I found this entire process, I would literally wake up, and I, I, I think I last had that at A-levels or whenever, with a thought in my mind at two o'clock in the morning, and I would keep a pen and a notepad next to my bed when suddenly something important to do with one of the characters popped into my head. And I had to write it down there and then. And what happens if you said to Greg, all full of this enthusiasm, this and that's going to happen? He went, uh-uh, no, it isn't. Did that happen? Quite often. How did you resolve that? By going away and thinking about it. And more often than not, I think probably Graham was right. And it helped to actually have, if you like, that set of objective eyes, somebody else reading it, who wasn't involved in the same way that I was, but who understood the whole story and and where it should be going. And I like to think that the finished version is very much a version that I wrote with Graham, having listened to Graham. As far as the story itself is concerned, when the reader gets involved in the story, you will then discover how many other levels of collaboration, apart from just the two authors, but how many levels of collaboration there are actually within the story. Very interesting. Is there any Jewish content? Apart from the fact that you're two Jewish authors. That's, I th- believe, where the extent. That's the extent. Right. Two um, nice Jewish boys from northwest London. Graham, do you have writing in your, in your blood? Or has this been something that you've wanted to explore? Most definitely do. I've been involved in a few creative things during my time. I, I, I'm not most patient of people. I have written, I, have, I wrote a, a book on uh, prostate disease because I'm, I have a background in medicine and I felt that men were relatively underserved compared with women in terms of populations of people being vocal about their needs. So I, I, wrote, I wrote something about prostate disease. But yes, writing is very much in my blood, but it takes time and we're all very busy people. It's very difficult to fit these things in. And do you see yourself writing a film script? You know where I'm going with that thought. Absolutely. I, I think, and I hope Graham would agree with me, we would take enormous delight if it reached some filmmaker's attention and if it could become a film. That, that would really be the crux. The few people that have actually read it before we have recently released it to the world on Amazon as a Kindle, those that have read it have said it is so filmable. It's romance, east-west, thriller, murder, moon. It's science fiction. It's all over the place. It's a bit of everything. It's all over the place. And you will be able to get it? One can get it? Yeah, through Amazon. I guess you just go and search for the title of the book, Collaborators, and it will come up as And both of your names. Both of our names, Michael Randbill and Graham Taylor. Or Graham Taylor and Michael Radbill, it doesn't matter which way around, but it comes up as collaborators. And it's a Kindle download at the moment, but we're talking about whether we extend that into other forms. Newly titled authors Michael Radbill and Graham Taylor speaking to Kate Fulton there. And if you would like more information about collaborators, then do go, as Michael and Graham just alluded to, to Amazon, where you'll find more information on it there. 
If you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, life on campus for any student can be tough. I'm sure that you'll know what I'm talking about if you don't have to cast your mind back too far. However, in this day and age, Jewish students really are up against it with what seems to be one notion after the other to try and boycott Israel and probably making life for Jewish students even more challenging than it ought to be. Well, the UJS, that's the Union of Jewish Students, has a new president in the form of Josh Seitler. He's been speaking to community reporter Diana Toman about his plans for the organisation and the trials and tribulations his comrades have to deal with on a daily basis. Diana started by asking him about his successful bid to become the new UJS president. And it's actually very interesting that this year there were four other candidates, well, three other candidates, there were four of us, which is very exciting because I don't think it's been that contested for a while. It was fun. I mean, it meant that I had to prepare it since January-ish. I've been preparing my team and getting things ready and it was quite a a tough one. It came down to six votes at the end. This is a whole year you've been planning it. Well, since since January or February, early February, I've been planning it. Why did you want it? I mean, I'm, a, I, I'm still at the London School of Economics, so I'm very politically engaged currently, with, especially with student politics. And I got very involved with UJS. Uh, I went on the Manigut trip, uh, which is their trip, their political trip to Israel. And I went on to the World Union of Jewish Students last year, and I've just been very involved. I was president of the Israel Society at LSE. And I just felt like I, lo- I, I love doing, I love being involved in student politics. I love representing Jewish students, but... I felt like hopefully I could make a difference, which is why I put myself forward, because I really hope that there's some, in, there's some, some experiences that I've had that not many students can, can say they've had. And I'm so lucky to have these, these experiences that I'd love to give back to students and make sure that everyone can have these experiences because there's so much out there. There's so much that can be given to students. And I just feel like it should be utilized and every single Jewish student should have these opportunities. And is that what you'd like to be remembered for during your year, your term of office, if I can call it that? <laughs> I think there are a few things that I'd like to change, but I think the most important thing for me would be if, if UJS could give something more to every single Jewish student or to as many Jewish students as possible that they wouldn't have without UJS. That I feel like that's UJS's main objective, that just to give something to Jewish students that they wouldn't have otherwise, to enhance their university experience that little bit more, to give them something, something extra. What sort of thing are you thinking of in particular, if you can be a bit more specific? I think, also, I think the, well, the, the issue going around the country and meeting all these students is that not, there's no student that's the same as someone else. I mean, you could be twins and you could have completely different opinions on things. And then I feel like every single, every single student wants something slightly different. And it's UJS's job to be on campus and finding out what these students want. If a student wants to meet, um, if there's, a, for example, a, um, a Jewish musician that's come to the UK and UJS has access to them, if there are students that would like to meet this musician that would help further their university experience or just for them, an opportunity for them that they wouldn't have otherwise, that would be great. It's just something that Jewish students would want themselves that they wouldn't have without UJS. If it's a job opportunity, if it's to meet a personality, if it's to go on a trip, if it's a bit of advice, even if it's just a helpful hand to phone up someone in the UJS office. If, for example, if you don't come from the UK and be like, hi, I'm, I'm, a, bit in, I'm a bit stuck with what X, Y, and Z with my union, could, could you give us a hand? Even if it's just something like that, just to help the welfare of students. So would you call yourself a student advice bureau or a bit more than that? No, because there's, there's a lot more than that. There's definitely, that's definitely, that's just part of the, part of UJS's job, in my opinion. 
there are there are issues of, of anti-Semitism on campus that wouldn't. That, I mean, that would come under advice, but it wouldn't be necessarily under under the same sort of advice, the same welfare advice as if someone had a problem, for example, with Shabbat on their campus or something like that. So if we get ourselves onto campus, as it were, mm. what's your feeling about the apparent anti-Israel feeling on campuses? How are you going to tackle it? I mean, I can, I mean I'm, I'm lucky to be able to, to speak from sort of a position of authority on this, being very involved with Israel on campus. So at least I have some kind of experience, which is, has definitely helped me throughout the campaign because I, I feel like I understand it more than, than someone who may not necessarily have been as tuned in. But going around the country and going and meeting students, you, it, it's impossible for me to explain it just in words, to, the, the difference in the, the situation on each campus to do with Israel. Every single campus has a different approach. And UJS, well, please God, under my, well, when I'm in charge, under my tenure, will be going on campuses and, and, meet, and hearing those stories and hearing the individuality of the, with each campus. Because every single campaign that's going to respond to criticism of Israel is going to have to tackle with, with specific answers to the questions that are being raised on each campus, which I think is very important. That it's, it's sort of being lost, especially in the media, when they say, oh, there's problems on British campuses with Israel. Well, you can't say that without knowing what each campus has. One thing could be, they could be questioning Israel's uh, political structure. One could be questioning Israel's foreign policy. One could be questioning Israel's economics. Like you, you can't just put it under one, one umbrella. Yes, there might be umbrella organizations, but each campus has different problems that have to be tackled individually. And is the UJS going to go on condemning the, if I can call it, the glorification of terror on campus? Absolutely. Um, but it's important that, UJ, that UJS has to take a, take a stand on, on the welfare of its students. And I think that, that's, very, that's definitely very important. And at the end of the day, it's mandated by its students. So no matter what my, what my personal opinions may be, it, it's run by the students. At conference last week, students put motions forward to mandate UJS to do what it what, what the students want, because at the end of the day, there are eight and a half thousand Jewish students that need representing and it, it needs everyone's voices. And that's, that's why we're so, it's so lucky to have a democratic part of it that, that decides what, what stand UJS takes in these things. One of the other campaigns I heard that the UJS was going to support was mental health awareness. Absolutely, yeah. Do you find that that's a, that is, in fact... A, a a strong influence amongst UJS students in particular. I think the way I mean the, the way UJS works is that it's it's to represent Jewish students and especially at conference, which I'd recommend anyone just to go and if I'm not sure if you can observe, but any student just to go and have a look to see that so many issues apart from just Israel and anti-Semitism are at the forefront of Jewish students' minds. If, if mental health mental health is obvious is a, is, a, is a problem amongst students. Actually, the, the girl who, who spoke spoke absolutely fun, phenomenally about she, she wrote, well, she raised awareness just in that room talking about that you, you, you can't tell about a person. You can't tell looking at a person if they have mental health issues. And mental health issues are not just necessarily the, the big, the big diagnosis, the sort of the big diagnosis that, they, that you hear and the big labels and the stigma that comes with them. It, it's, it's with a lot of a lot of students that have mental health difficulties sometimes there are times where it might be difficult to be you might have mental difficulties being a student and if Jewish students feel this is a problem because all students do then you just should take a stand on it it's it should be run it's run for the students by the students Josh Seatler speaking to community reporter Diana Toman there about life on campus and his newfound presidency of the UJS
You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Adam Bradley and me today is author and journalist Jeremy Havadi and Rabbi Morris Michaels from Aleth Garden Synagogue. The subject for this edition is, as we heard in the news with Viv earlier, Jewish schools and the introduction of the Islamic faith into them. Now, this is not to practice the religion, but more to be taught it under new government requirements that states' faith schools must now teach 25% religious studies in another religion. Subsequently, we've heard that Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis has announced that Islam will be that religion and that schools such as JFS and Emmanuel will be amongst the first to adopt the changes. Rabbi, how do you feel about this? It's a very interesting concept, and I really don't know to what extent the school governors and parents will feel about this proposal from Rabbi Mervis, which, of course, it is a proposal because, you know, he can't actually impose on any school what it teaches, even though the school may be under his auspices. Uh, it is for the governors to make that decision. I was until fairly recently a governor of Clotikva School. I chaired governors for five years, and I know that anything of this nature would be something that I'd want to consult with the teaching staff and also with parents before any decision was was made. We taught there different uh, faiths, but not one specific faith in addition to Judaism. We'd rather talk about all the different ones so that the children could learn about a faith, but enjoy their own. Were they all equally taught, all all differently? And how did do you decide which had more prominence? I mean, because there's so many religions. Was it just the major religions that they Well, taught? we taught... The, the, um, the main thing we taught was Judaism, of course. Yeah, of course. But yeah. once you separated that out, we looked, generally speaking, at what was happening during the course of the year from the point of view of the calendar of these right. other faiths and then teach about... Easter or Eid or whatever, Diwali, whatever it happened to be, as it came around. We took the children on trips to mosques, a Hindu temple, a church and so on, much in the same way as we had children from other faith groups coming to Clotikva school. But I think it's, mm. it's, it's stronger than this now. It's, it's becoming, as it were, law that you have to teach in a faith school, you have to teach another religion. And the chief rabbi has said that he wants that other religion to be Islam. What do you think, Jeremy? Well, I'm going to broadly give a positive uh, a positive response to this with, with a reservation or a caveat. And I've taught at a, a Jewish school for two years where I think these changes might be a little bit tricky. I think it's very important that if you're going to give children a broad and balanced curriculum, if you're going to give them a balanced outlook on the world, and to avoid an insular approach, you should balance a healthy understanding of Jewish background, Jewish values, Jewish culture and Jewish history with an understanding of, of how other faiths actually see the world. And therefore, it's important, I think, that even in the most religious Jewish school, that students are able to embrace other faiths. And of course, there are so many commonalities, there are so many common ways of looking at the world if you're studying other, other religions. 
And so I think from that point of view, it is an important change. And I've always believed it's very important. But the reservation is this. I don't think that you should just teach one other faith. I think that there are several faiths, obviously. You've got Christianity, Jainism, Sikhism, Hinduism and Buddhism. And if you're going to teach other faiths, why not have an all-encompassing approach where you are looking at how all those faiths are looking at the world in various ways, look at all the different festivals. I just don't agree with the idea that you should focus on one religion. And I think by the chief rabbi sort of immediately saying it's going to be Islam, I can't help but think that maybe an element of political correctness there. You know, why focus on one? Why not broaden it out to look at lots of different faiths, all of which have important things to say? Well, maybe it's because the Islamic faith in many ways has a great similarity to Judaism. And it's extraordinary, but it is. I mean, they also believe in killing animals in a particular way. And although their form of killing is not accepted by by Jews as being strictly kosher, it still is very similar to kosher killing. So from a Jewish point of view, there is a way of looking at it. And, and Muhammad is a prophet, not as in the Christian faith, Jesus is, is the son of God. Muhammad is just a prophet. So it is similar as well to the mm. one God, as it were. I think there is also a danger if you go for the one which is closest of saying, well, okay, so what is the difference? Why not let's all be the same and we'll have a sort of a combination of Judaism and Islam as a new religion? I think, you know, personally, I think there are lots of other important faiths that we need to be involved in, involving ourselves with. You know, we've just heard we should be looking at all faiths. I, I'm on the executive committee of the Interfaith Network for the UK, and so I work with people from all faiths. You're and, absolutely and, right, but the fact and, remains the fact remains that the government and the chief rabbi between them, or not between them, but the government has said this has got to be the rule, and and the chief rabbi has decided that the one in Jewish faith schools should be Islam. You know, we should we should also recognise that. Up until very, very recently, the chief rabbi was the strongest opponent to having any other faith taught in the in schools, and he had persuaded the board of deputies to go along with him on that as well. This is a total about turn, and and I think you know there may well be something about political correctness here. And let's be quite clear about it: we still live in what is a Christian country, and if we want mm. our children to understand most of a, about about most of the other people that they're going to be coming into contact with, then it should be Christianity. See, I, I actually disagree, to be honest. I, I think there is a much greater need for Jews in general to have a far greater understanding of Islam. I don't think it's political correctness because I don't think it's a gesture. I actually think it's a very constructive idea that there's so much mystery surrounding Islam. There's so much good press bad press medium press we there's so much we don't know about it about the actual living it we know all the the stereotypes we know all the stereotypes about everything christianity living in this country we have a pretty good grasp of what christianity is based on what it's about its roots islam which as you said it's very similar they're like it's like a sibling religion to ours we don't know enough. And the fact that at the moment there is so many issues in the world regarding Islam, particularly with, with Jews, I think a greater understanding can only benefit us. 
Of course, we should always be understanding, and education is important across the board. And I think there are the Dharmic religions. Why, why, why shouldn't we learn about... Oh, our children learn about Hinduism. Why shouldn't they learn about Sikhism? But it doesn't I, I, affect us as directly. I, I, I agreed. We should. We should be open to all religions and open to understanding and learning about them all. But if we had to focus on one, to me, it's it's a no-brainer. That, yeah, but I'm not convinced we have to be focused on one. I think that there is a real opportunity here for us to go to government and say we want to talk about teach about all religions. We don't want to teach about just one other religion because. I think that's counterproductive. But there are three religions which believe in the Almighty, and that is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. It, it depends it, how you define the Almighty. The other faiths in this country will tell you they're also, for the vast majority mm. of the cases, monotheistic. It's true, and there, there are, for Even example, Hinduism. There, there are Even Hinduism. Yeah. So I was going to say there are Hindus who are obviously they believe in polytheism, but many regard all those different gods as the expression of one, and therefore yeah. in that yes, sense there's a commonality. In, in the way we talk about the various different attributes of God. Yeah. Yeah, but the difference is that there are in this country, if you like, most parents and most children know of the three big these three big religions. And, that the, and I think the chief rabbi at the same time, the government have said, you've got to teach another religion as well as the one you're already teaching. The chief rabbi thinks this is a new way of making bringing Islam and Judaism towards that's, each other. That's how I feel very strongly about it. I think this could be a really good opportunity. We have pretty good relations with Christians, with Buddhists, with Hindus. We don't. There aren't so many issues that the issues we have with Islam. I think it could be a, a wonderful opportunity, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, to actually partner, have partnerships, actually work together, actually be involved physically in each other's schools. If we can build that from a young age, I think we could really improve relations because at the moment it's the unknown that people fear. If you think back to a little while ago, I can't remember, quite a long ago, there was a mosque which was attacked by a number of people and it, it was badly damaged. And the congregants found that the people who came to help them were the local Jews. And it was in all the newspapers, all the stories, and how touched the Mohammedans were by the Jews who helped them. And this is all part of it. And I think the same was in Sweden, where the Muslims surrounded the synagogue. To I was going to say, and, yes. and the reverse of this is also true in different parts of this country. For example, you know, the, the synagogue in Bradford was really in, in having problems. The roof needed to be replaced. There was no money coming in. And the local Muslim community helped them with that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah. yes, there are lots of things happening that... that we don't hear about. We don't hear about them because they're good news, yeah. you know. And good news doesn't sell newspapers, it, you know. It, well, that's true. If you go into a, into a newsroom, as I have been into many, <laughs> you will find that when there's a bad news, everybody's terribly excited. And if it's very good news, they get rather bored. That's the press for you, or broadcasting for you. I mean, bad news is good news, if you see what I mean. But nonetheless, we're now talking about something that's going to happen. I just personally think it's very interesting. I agree with the idea that you should build strong partnerships between Jewish and Muslim schools. And I'm, the outreach, I think, is very important. But it's going to be very interesting as well to have trips to churches, gurdwaras, temples and so on, to be able to experience a whole variety of different foods, festivities. 
mm. the, the cultural aspects of the different religions as well as obviously sharing an idea of what their religious understanding of the world is. I just think it provides a more interesting experience. And as I say, we're living in a country with a whole multiplicity of religious groups. So we can make Islam a big emphasis of that 25%, but don't at the same time ignore those other religious communities. Yeah, that I'd be horrified if they completely... If it was just one religion, I think that would be incredibly narrow-minded. But if, if the yeah. school did what you say, and I think it's a very good idea, but if they did what you're just suggesting, there'd be no time to teach mathematics, chemistry, and English and, and history. I mean, this the whole point is that when it comes to the religious side of a school, it's got to teach, the, the chief rabbi said, it's got to teach one other, one Cl other religion. Clive, Clive, there are Jewish schools that have been working with other religious groups, other faith groups, for years. They've not needed the government or the chief rabbi to tell them to do this. They've recognised that this is good practice. This is good citizenship. This is the way in which we have to work if we want to have a cohesive society and they've been doing that they've not been told to do it or needed to be told to do it and you know and they've managed to teach maths and history and geography and everything yes, else but as well on the other hand there are jewish state schools where there is a lot of very strict feelings about it where they say the parents have to go to synagogue every shabbat they have to prove that they are proper Jews, if you, see, if you see what I mean, proper religious Jews. And there may be Jewish parents who are not quite as religious as um, you or I might be, but they still feel Jewish and want their children to go to a Jewish school. Yes. I think the worry for a lot of Jewish parents, certainly the more religious, and, and I think this was Chief Rabbi's concerns, is that it's not geography, history, maths that's going to suffer. It's Jewish studies, because there will still be the same amount of time given to religious studies, but you'll just have to incorporate more of the other religions into it. So it's actually that's, that's the Jewish also, side that, 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 that also, If you think yeah. about it, there's another point to it. The chief rabbi has probably decided on Islam for Jewish schools to take up as the other religion to teach because they want Islamic schools to teach Judaism so that the two begin to understand each other better. That would be nice. If, it would be nice, but I think that if I were a teacher or a head teacher or a governor of, a, of an Islamic school, I'd be wanting to teach the, the majority faith to, to my kids, Christianity. Jeremy, you, you've been a teacher. Yes, know. indeed. So how do you feel about it for, if you were running a Jewish school now? Well, I would say this. I mean, if I, if I was, let's say, the head of Jewish studies at the school that I taught at, which is an Orthodox Jewish school, I'm sure that I would quite possibly not feel happy about it because I've got a whole curriculum to teach and you're going to disrupt it. What I would say is that if you're, let's say, part of the Orthodox Jewish community, you've spent many, many years, many, many years studying Judaism and Jewish history and culture, and you've been immersed in it. And that's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I would want there to be a significant amount of space where you could really broaden your understanding. I think the alternative is that you have a very insular worldview. You, it may be harder to interact with people of other faiths. You come from not having that, that knowledge that this kind of opportunity would provide. As I say, it's not my, that's not my reservation. It's that we want to ensure that as well as Judaism, you have, as I say, you experience the multiplicity of other faiths that are in the UK. And, and have a diverse understanding. I suppose that makes immense sense. Yeah, but what does everyone think about... I've, I've heard this notion that some, a couple of people have mentioned to me that they're concerned that by teaching more prominently other religions, we could be pushing Jewish kids away from Judaism. 
Could we be encouraging them? Because I know a lot of Jews certainly get to a certain age and they explore Buddhism because it feels... And, and is, is there a concern there that, that focusing so heavily on another religion, especially something like Islam, which is, as we said, very similar, could we lose people to it? Well, I don't know. You could look at it the other way and you could say that the pupils who are Christian and, and Muslim and Hindu and all the rest of them, they might be drawn towards Judaism. I, I mean, just wonder if we need to safeguard it more because it's... it's... As I said, as, as chair of governors of a Jewish primary school, when we first opened, we talked about how we were going to deal with faith. And we made it very, very clear to all of the teaching staff most of whom were Jewish, but not all, was that we, were, that we wanted the children to learn about other faiths, but to experience Judaism. Right. And that's the way in which you safeguard it. Mm. You, make a huge, you make a difference in your terminology, you make a difference in the whole approach to these other faiths and to Judaism. Mm. My concern is pro- possibly that Religion isn't actually even taken that seriously in the first place. I know at my school, when I was younger, I did my very first year at secondary school. I, I went and I really enjoyed it, learning all about all the religions. Whenever anything Jewish came up, of course, being the token Jew, I got up and had to give a speech about it. There were two or three other Jews in other classes in my year. By the second year, I was told by them, you do realise we're Jewish and we don't have to go into the lessons. So I ended up just having free periods and the school allowed that and looking back i think that's scandalous that the jews were allowed to skip religious education what i like about this is that it's it's progressive it's people thinking about i don't know what anyone else's experience is well actually I, i went to a jesuit school and there were only three jews at the school but we were treated with great respect and we went off and did our studies during that time but it was required of our fellow students, our Catholic fellow students and other Christian students there to come to us and ask us about Jewish questions. Oh, really? Mm. Interesting. I went to a private school, which wasn't a Jewish school, but actually half its students' population was Jewish, haberdashers. Right. And we were given the option of either learning all faiths in RE or just doing Jewish RE. And I have to say... and I slightly regretted in a way I just chose the Jewish RE and I think back now much as that was lovely it would have been great to sort of mm. branch out and learn more about other faiths well I guess I went to school before any of you and at my primary school uh, I recall in the final year there were four Jewish children in the class and when it came to this time of year the teacher who I later discovered was also Jewish in a fit of irony, I think, organised a nativity play in which the one Jewish girl was Mary and the three Jewish boys were the three wise men. (laughs) Uh, I went to uh, a grammar school which, like Jeremy's, was close on 50% Jewish and uh, indeed I remember when we came back from holiday after the uh, my third year there they'd opened up a kosher kitchen wow. there were that many jewish wow. kids and so there really was no question about it re was either you went to christian re you went to jewish re so this is does seem that they are trying to make it a more inclusive experience exactly. religious that's education a, to our experience that's why it's such a good thing yeah 
Well, I think that's a good place to which to end this discussion. My thanks to our guests, author and journalist Jeremy Havadi and Rabbi Morris Michaels from Aylith Garden Synagogue. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Romain from Maidenhead Synagogue. The story of Iris Freud holds lessons for many mixed-faith couples. What was sad was not that she died in mid-October, age 92, but that she lay in a mortuary for the next several weeks whilst the tug of love was fought over her body. The problem was that Iris was Christian, and her late husband Gideon, who passed away a few years ago, was Jewish. They had two children, a boy and a girl, now both in their 60s. The daughter wanted a Church of England service for Iris with traditional hymns. However, the son wanted a Jewish funeral for Iris, similar to that which his father had. When the son and daughter family could not agree, they actually went to court, a case the papers labelled as a holy war. Eventually, a compromise emerged with the funeral being in two parts. First, a Jewish-style ceremony, after which there would be a pause, those that wished to leave could do so, and then followed the hymns and Christian element. Simple, really, you might think, but it highlights one of the less obvious aspects of mixed-faith marriages, which most people think of as being about the wedding day and, you know, whether you can walk down the aisle, stand under a copper, or have to settle for a registry office wedding. Alternatively, they assume the main issue is about which faith to bring up the children in, his or hers. Or about what happens if it's a baby boy, and do you circumcise him or baptise him, or neither, or both? But, you know, it also affects the end of life, too. Moreover, this aspect is set to become a much more of a talking point as the great bulge in mixed-faith marriages occurred back in the 1950s, and so those couples are now passing away, raising some very urgent questions. I mean, for instance, which cemetery should they be buried in? Christian, Jewish, or a neutral council-owned one? Uh, and that's then complicated by the fact that many Jews are not comfortable with a Christian cemetery full of crosses. But then many Jewish cemeteries have bylaws stating that they are only for members of the Jewish faith. This has then meant that the husband and wife were buried in separate places, while their children had to visit mom and dad in different cemeteries. That's also the reason why a high percentage of mixed-faith couples opt for cremation even though personally they might even prefer burials, but do so so as to avoid the territorial problem, while their ashes are then scattered under the same non-denominational rosebush. But think about it. Who should officiate at the service? The minister of the deceased, who can give the correct last rites, or the minister of the partner that survived, who can give better pastoral care? That can then lead to quirky situations. I mean, I have led several times a funeral where there were 40 people present, but only two Jews, myself and the corpse. And so I tailored a Jewish service for a completely non-Jewish congregation. Recently, there's been a change in attitude, and some synagogues, including my own in Maidenhead, have decided, look, if a couple have been living together for several decades, why should we split them up in death? We therefore do mixed-faith funerals. It means that when couples get married, they should not just discuss the wedding day, honeymoon and joint bank account, but also talk through all the cycle of life decisions they will one day have to make, so that both partners know what the other wants. They should also communicate it to their wider family, so there are no squabbles and no visits to the high court. 
We Jews don't have the line in our marriage service that says, till death us do part, but the sentiment is right, and couples should be able to lie side by side and not several miles away from each other. Thank you to Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Romain from Maidenhead Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Michael Radbill and Graham Taylor, Josh Seatler. Thanks also must go to the Schmooze team, Jeremy Havadi and Rabbi Morris Michaels, and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website. That address is coming up. And you can search for us as well in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version of the paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.